0: We're going to carry on really where we left off last week for this last class, where we saw in Ephesians how Paul, in dealing with the mystery of the gospel, has introduced this idea of bringing Jew and Gentile together. This is all in God's plan, and it teaches us about unity today. And at the end of Ephesians, he uses the, what would we call it, a metaphor, if that's the right expression, of marriage as kind of like a, um, a parallel lesson to do with getting two very different types of people together to form a unity. So in this case, of course, it's man and woman coming together to form a marriage unit. And this, of course, was in God's plan right from the beginning. Uh, really, it goes back further than the, the call of the Gentiles to be with the Jews. It goes right back to Genesis chapter 2 and written in plain sight or hidden, hidden away in the pages of Genesis chapter 2 was God's purpose to unite in one body different kinds of people in the, uh, the marriage of the, the first pair, Adam and Eve. So I just want to go to one little point. We're, we're going to analyze uh, Genesis chapter 2 a little bit more. What Paul has done in Ephesians chapter 5 is he's given us little hints how to look at Genesis chapter 2. Not just about the marriage of Adam and Eve. It has deep typological significance as it points forward to Christ and the Ecclesia. So it teaches us about marriage, and it teaches us about the being that one body in the Lord Jesus Christ, How we and how we relate to each other in Christ, how we relate to Christ, How our marriages should reflect the union between Christ and the Ecclesia. And I think probably it has implications, too, for uh, the roles of brothers and sisters in the Ecclesia. And um, this is this is a topic I'm right in the middle of studying at the moment. So I haven't got any real firm conclusions on some of these things. So I'm still thinking about these issues. And uh, so feedback is always welcome, and especially in this case. So, last week we had a look at these verses in Ephesians 5 about wives submitting to their husbands. Notice it doesn't say, and I think Jim mentioned this, it doesn't say submit to all the brethren in the Ecclesia. It says, wives submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. So, the relationship between wives and husbands is not meant to be where the husband is this domineering control freak because that's not what Christ is like. It's as to the Lord. We are to relate to each other as Christ relates to us. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the ecclesia. So again, the husband's duty is to represent Christ to his wife, his body, and is himself its savior. Uh, And so it talks about the the ecclesia submitted to Christ, as wives submit to the husbands. And husbands to love their wives as Christ loved the ecclesia. So consistently through this passage, that is the model. So based on that, I just want to make a, a little point about godly leadership, because this is what this, this really teaches us about, doesn't it, brothers and sisters, about how um, in a marriage there should be this essence of godly leadership, and that brings with it lessons for leadership on an ecclesial level how should we lead and in the next slide I'll try to summarize the difference between what some people think is leadership or being the the head of a body or the head of an organization um, the idea of authority And authority is distinct from leadership now a really good video on this it's not a biblical video it's it's done by a um, a guru on management and leadership. You may have heard of him. His name is Simon Sinek. And uh, he has a TED Talk on leadership. And he goes into this sort of thing. And it's really, really worth listening to. So if you can Google Simon Sinek leadership, safety, that kind of thing, have a look at it. It's only like 12 minutes long. And its it really, I think, hits the nail on the head of good leadership. And it comes right from the Bible, not... She, you, Sure, that this guy who does this knows that this is a very, very biblical thing. So, there's a difference between authority and leadership. And this is one of the conflicts in the first century where we have people like the scribes and the, the um, Pharisees and the chief priests who were at the, the head, if you like, of the body of the Jews in the first century, but only in the sense of having authority. They didn't really display leadership. Now, good godly leadership, and this is a lesson, whether it's husbands in home or leaders in the ecclesia, CYC leaders, ABs, you know, wherever leadership comes in, good leadership is meant to make a safe environment. And when there is safety, that produces naturally things like trust and cooperation, Whereas the authority, the the authoritarian supposed leadership, but it wasn't true leadership of the scribes and Pharisees, that produced really the opposite of safety. People felt afraid, and that produces things like mistrust and rebellion. So I think that's really worth thinking about. And for those of us who are married, who uh, are brethren, who have wives, you know, there's a fundamental difference between being an authoritarian husband and being this servant leader who provides a safe environment for our wives and children. Now, I don't want to go into that um, anymore. That's not really the topic I was going to get into, but I thought it was worth bringing up as kind of an addendum to what we looked at last week. And again, Google that that video. It's really well worth watching. It hits the nail exactly on the hand. All right, so now what we wanna do is get Hey uh, Richard,
1: Richard, oh, can yep, I just make sure. a comment?
0: Yep. Yeah,
1: um, there, there was a uh, kind of famous uh, organizational kind of uh, psychologist, if you will, um, called Edward Deming, and he, he was the one who basically created the system that Toyota, Kind of, uh, kind of sprung from right. yeah. total quality uh, improvement, total q- TQM, total quality management. Yep. Anyway, he had a concept about the fact that the leader should actually actively drive out fear mm. from the organization. So you think about perfect love casts out fear. Um, I, I, you know it, what I really like about it is that it is—it's an active responsibility of leadership to drive fear out of the relationship, and so. As husbands, as leaders, th- those are fear is natural in that in that um, mis- m- that mismatch of authority and power that comes with a relationship of one person having hierarchy over another, and so the so the the I think it is really a biblical concept that you're talking about is that that leadership's role is to drive out fear
0: from from that relationship. Yeah, thanks, Eric. That's a great point, and it, it just shows. It's really interesting when you you know, you hear sometimes seminars and work on management, leadership, and so forth, and when it really gets to uh, what is good leadership, you can see, well, the Bible already said this 2,000 years ago, the wisdom of of leadership and, you know, managing an organization is right there in the Bible. It's really fascinating. All right, so what we want to do in the meat of this class is go back to Genesis chapter 2. As I said, Paul in Ephesians 5 gives us some clues as to how we're meant to look at a passage like this, that it goes far more deep than just, oh, this is about marriage. Uh, He brings out the lessons regarding Christ and the ecclesia. And this is part of what the the whole idea of mystery is all about. I mean, you, you can read this sort of passage on a surface level and not really get much out of it. It's only until you delve deeper and you see that written in there is the, the, the profound uh, aspects of the purpose of God. And uh, this is about Christ and the Ecclesia. So what we want to do is look at some of the key ideas here, that it was not good that the man should be alone. Why is that the case? Why was it not good for the man to be alone? And the, the woman here is called a helper fit for him, or as we traditionally said, the, the help meet, which I never like that term. Uh, a Helper fit for the man is a, a much better idea. And we're going to look at this towards the end of the class if we have time. We're going to see that uh, a wife being a helper is not the idea of, let's say, an assistant or a secretary, which is traditionally something like how we've looked at this, that the man is the one who you know lee lead, leads and drives and and the the wife is there just as like this little assistant on the side no it's it, it's fundamentally different to that so in order to create the woman god caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man we'll have a look at that and we'll have a look at this uh, curious thing that eve was made out of the rib of adam very very famous biblical concept of course everyone knows that Eve was made out of Adam's rib even people who don't know much about the Bible uh, have heard about that what exactly does that mean and what does it mean that he made the woman we're going to see significance of this particular word in the uh, in the Hebrew and uh, we'll have a look at the end here of this idea of unity because that's that's our main topic after all and that's what we've been looking at especially in uh, places like Ephesians, how these things teach us about that concept of unity. So the man and the woman brought together, men are from Mars, women are from Venus, but they're meant to come together and be one flesh, teaching us that the ecclesia needs to be one despite all of our differences, which normally would maybe cause us to divide, but we've got to learn to come together. So let's look at this a little bit more deeply. Now, First of all, even more fundamental in Genesis chapter 2, back in chapter 1, Oh, where is it? Oh, where's my verse? Well, I must have deleted it, but I did have Genesis chapter 1, verse 27 up here. So right at the beginning, when in Genesis chapter 1, verse 26, God made man and woman um, in his image and likeness, It specifically says in Genesis chapter 1, verse 27, male and female, he created them. And straight away, in just the very first chapter of the Bible, God is introducing this concept of diversity in unity. He could have just made one gender. I mean, there there are animals in the animal kingdom who don't have male and female, and they still manage to produce young. I think they're called androgynous. I think that's the term. God could have done that with us. He could have just made one person, same gender, thinks the same way. There's there's none of this conflict that can result because men and women think so differently and approach problems so differently. Likewise, we looked at this last week, God could have avoided the whole problem of Jews going down one route and Gentiles going down another route and just called all people at once and just gone down one avenue and not gone through this whole rigmarole. But in God's wisdom, he made man and woman, male and female, and he made them very, very different. And it's, again, in God's wisdom, uh, because he wanted to teach us this important concept of unity, of working together. of of, of having those different um, angles looking at issues that together we can solve problems. Together we can uh, build up the ecclesia. And there's wonderful wisdom in all of that, of course. So what does it mean that it was not good that the man should be alone and Adam went into a deep sleep? Now on the next slide, And then there's an interesting echo of that in John chapter 12. Here, Jesus is talking about his impending death. This is the eve of his death. And notice the echo with Genesis 2 here. He says, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. He's talking about his death. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. So it is not good for a corn of wheat to be alone where would there be the production of fruitfulness without that corn of wheat falling into the ground so this is a symbol of death and of course out of that burial of the corn of wheat in the ground it produces much fruit so that's what jesus says if it dies it bears much fruit whoever loses whoever loves his life loses it whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life It's really interesting what uh, Jesus says there, both in light of Genesis chapter 2 and in light of how Genesis 2 points forward to him and the Ecclesia as outlined in in Ephesians. So it's not good for Christ to remain alone. He needed to bring forth his bride. Now, in Genesis chapter 2, Adam went into a deep sleep. So Jesus went into a deep sleep. So what Adam went through points forward to the death of Christ. And it's in that activity of dying, that fruit comes about. And that is exactly what Paul says in Ephesians. The the relationship between the man and the woman is accomplished, the true godly relationship, when the husband loves his wife and gives himself up for her, as Christ did the ecclesia. That's the only way to produce fruit in a marriage. That's the only way to produce a godly seed. That's the only way to um, make sure that your wife and your children are raised up as uh, godly, fruitful people, if the husband is Christ in the sense of um, not loving his life, in, in the sense that Jesus talks about it here who hates his life in this world, will keep it for eternal life. So it's the aspect of of giving ourselves up for the ecclesia. So that's all contained in uh, Genesis chapter 2. Now, the second thing we want to have a look at is what it means here that uh, having put Adam Adam into this deep sleep, he made the woman. Now, the language here is really, really interesting. That word made there is this uh, Hebrew word, bana, and it's a construction term. And we're going to see it's not the only construction term in Genesis chapter 2. This is the word, the normal word for building a house. Now, I have to resist the temptation. I'm going to say it, aren't I? I told Esther, I mustn't say this in the class. I mustn't say that Eve was built like a house. Oh, she just shouted from the other room, don't say it. But um, that's, that's what's going on here. Eve was built. That's what the word means. It doesn't mean created in, in the, the sense in earlier on in Genesis chapter one. It means built. And uh, it's, I think it's purposefully written there in the text that uh, Eve is represented like the building of a house. Now, that's also true, another construction term in Genesis chapter two is the rib. Uh, that word rib is the Hebrew word selah. And uh, we're gonna have a look at that in a moment. And we're gonna see that that too is, as I said, a construction term. So what's going on here? We have the creation of the, the body of Adam, if you like. you know. She comes out of Adam. She's part of his body. So it represents the Christ body. But also we have language here, which is to do with building a house. Now, if you think about it, Scripture uses these metaphors all the way through. Sometimes the ecclesia is described as a body and sometimes it's described as a house. You can think of many different passages that talk about this so Paul takes this up in Ephesians where he uses these mixed metaphors he describes the ecclesia as a house in particular the tabernacle or the temple and as a body and he's picking up on Genesis 2 and these mixed metaphors so here's an example from Ephesians chapter 4 verse 12 he talks about equipping the saints and that's the idea of furnishing a building uh, same idea down here equipped equipping the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body. So there are the two metaphors of Christ, from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint. And we're going to see that that is a mixed metaphor too. You think about a body which is held together by joints, you know, joints hold together our various body parts. But also that is construction language. There are joints and pinions and all sorts of things that, that join uh, walls to roofs and floors and so forth. It's talking, it's using the same idea for houses and for um, bodies. Uh, when each part is working properly, it makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. So Paul is tangling this language together to really bring home to us this idea that the Ecclesia is both a body and a building. So let's think about why he does this. And uh, let's go back to the, the creation of Eve in Genesis 2, where one of Adam's ribs was used. Now, that is a really, really bad translation. It does not mean a rib at all. This particular Hebrew word is selah, and it more has the idea of a side. And it, it's a really good metaphor for, in the first place for showing how uh, man and woman really are meant to be seen as equal in Christ, It's not that one is better than the other. Eve was taken out of the side of Adam, not out of the head of Adam, not out of the foot of Adam, out of the side of Adam. So in that sense, God is saying you are equal. You're, as it were, two halves of a whole. And together, you form the image of God. It's not that Adam can become the image of God on his own. It's not that Eve can become the image of God on her own. The two have to work together. This is what we talked about last week. We saw how some in the ecclesia tend to emphasize things like grace. Others in the ecclesia tend to emphasize things like truth. Two aspects of the glory of God, or what, what it means to be in the image of God. Now, rather than trying both to become perfect um, examples of the mix of, of truth and grace, what's meant to happen in the ecclesia is we recognize our sort of different um, ways of thinking, but we work together that grace and truth might come together in one body. So that is what it's like to be uh, in a marriage. That's how marriages are meant to work. So let's look a little bit more deeply at this word rib. And it's really fascinating. If you do a concordance search on this word rib, you'll find it's used about 40 times in scripture. And out of those 40 times, seven times it's used for the construction of uh, this one up here at Solomon's Temple. 11 times for the Temple of Ezekiel's prophecy, and 18 times for the construction of the tabernacle. And there's about two or three other occurrences. So almost every time that this word rib, selah, is used, it's a construction term. And that's exactly what it is. So that adds to this idea that Eve was, was built like a house. So let's uh, have a look at uh, how this word is used in the tabernacle and in the temple. First of all, let's think about the tabernacle. When you go to uh, passages like Exodus 25, Exodus 27, you'll see that this word is usually translated something like side, sometimes as side chamber particularly in the record about the the temple. And every time it's used, it's in the context of support. So this is from uh, an online dictionary that goes into this particular word, cellar. It's used for the the sides of the tabernacle, the tent proper. It's used for the sides of the Ark of the Covenant and the sides of the uh, altar of incense. So this uh, online dictionary says the carrier rings of the Ark of the Covenant and the bronze altar weren't simply attached to the sides, the sailor of these items, but to their vertical structural supports. And if you look at this particular website, it goes deeply into this word and it's very firmly connected with the idea in construction of a support of a house or a building. Now, when you think about marriage, isn't that language that we use in a good marriage where we talk about a wife being a good support for a husband? You know, we, we use language like supportive wife. And I think that's very, very biblical because that's exactly how this word is used. It's to do with how the, the tabernacle and the temple needed that solid, stable, faithful support to help it to function. So there's part of the, the metaphor of, of what Eve represents. Now, in particular, this word side, here's one occurrence of it in Exodus 26, it's used for the, uh, the tabernacle proper and the sides of the tabernacle And in particular, it's used in connection with the the whole way that it was constructed with uh, what what it says in the King James boards, a more modern version will say frames. So you shall make the frames for the tabernacle. Now, what are these frames all about? Well, in the tabernacle, uh, one of the outstanding things were the curtains. There's a lot of language about how you were to make these ornate curtains that were you know, covered with cherubim and were meant to be beautiful and were meant to reflect the glory of God. However, if you just have you know, a bunch of curtains and you don't attach them to something, they're just gonna fall down. So the function of these frames was to keep the curtains up and to support them. And uh, this picture here is a little bit inaccurate the way that they're described in exodus is more like you can kind of see in this picture here kind of like a ladder so there would have been um, holes here so like a each one of these would look like a ladder and you could see the curtain the glorious color of the curtain through that ladder work that was what the frames were for they were to help support and to display the these glorious curtains so you think about it then, that is the the function of the woman in a relationship. She's there to be a support. She's there in a marriage to be a support. We as an ecclesia are to support Christ. We're to show forth the glory of God in the Lord Jesus Christ in the sense of of supporting him by, uh, if you like, holding him up through our witnessing, through our preaching, through our Uh, living our lives, that we're to show Christ. So that, um, I think, is where this this whole metaphor is going. So the idea, then, of support. Also, we have in the tabernacle the idea of oneness. So we've seen in Genesis chapter 2 about the importance of one flesh Ephesians chapter four, the whole body joined and held together by every joint. Made the point earlier that we can look at that as joints in a body or what comes out in that same chapter in Exodus chapter 26. And these curtains, you shall make 50 clasps of gold and couple the curtains one to another with the clasps, clasps so that the tabernacle may be a single whole. In other versions, it says that it may be one tabernacle. So lots of different parts, different curtains, but all coupled together to form one single whole. So that idea of unity really comes through very, very strongly in this. And uh, everything that was utilized in the tabernacle You know, you wonder sometimes when you're reading about the tabernacle, why do we have all this detail about how, even about how things were joined together and so forth. It's telling us about the importance of being joined together, of being held together in a spiritual sense. Um, Another passage that talks about uh, the, the bride as being a building as well is in Isaiah chapter 45. This is a very lovely psalm about the marriage of Christ to his bride. And in Psalm 45, I'm not sure you can see, it's not very clear there, but verse 13, there's an interesting verse. It says about the bride, the king's daughter is all glorious within, her clothing is of wrought gold. Now, what's interesting about that particular word, within, is that it's also a construction term. It's used, I think, pretty much exclusively outside of this passage for the insides of a house. In particular, again, the tabernacle, Solomon's temple, and Ezekiel's temple. So here it talks about the inner part of the sanctuary. Solomon overlaid the inside of the house with pure gold. Then he went into the inner room So if you think about the woman, then, being the sides of the house, it's not an empty house. She is all glorious within. So if you apply that to the ecclesia, we are, as it were, the sides of the house, the sides of the the house of God. And the house of God was full of the glory of God. So... Whether it's the ecclesia or our individual selves, what's important is what is inside of us. And we know that that's a very uh, biblical principle. So you can go down all sorts of avenues with this, looking at uh, the connection between um, the woman and the building of a house. Proverbs talks about um, building a house and it says, that wisdom has builded her house. Wisdom is personified as a woman there. All sorts of uh, interesting things to, to look at there. Now, let's come back to the, uh, the temple. And this word rib, this word cellar. In First Kings chapter 6 and in Ezekiel, this word is translated in most virgin versions as something like a side chamber. And various expositors have argued about this, saying, well, probably these side chambers in the temple looked like kind of like uh, the ribbing on the side of a rib cage because of the word rib in Genesis chapter two. They try to figure out how this could be like Adam's, Adam's rib. But coming back to this online dictionary that goes really deeply into this word, look at how. Uh, they talk about it here. The side rooms of the temple were buttresses, like the side aisles of a medieval cathedral. They kept the walls of the main building from bulging outward. So here's a picture of, um, these are called flying buttresses. They're called flying buttresses because they reach out from the wall and they don't go down to the floor. Other buttresses go from the wall right down to the floor. And they're there so that, exactly what it says here, so that these walls don't bulge outward. They're there as a support. That's what the word is used for in Kings and Ezekiel. So again, that's the exact same word that's used to describe Eve coming out of the side of Adam. And it just adds to this aspect that the woman is meant to be the support for the man, to to hold him up, to, to strengthen him in, her, in a way that only a wife can do. And that really, I think, um, opens up a lot of um, really deep principles concerning the, uh, of what, what makes up a strong marriage in Christ. <clears throat> now, this word buttresses is actually a biblical word. Does anybody know where it is? I think I got it on the next slide. So when Paul wrote to Timothy, interestingly, he is writing to the overseer of the Ecclesia in Ephesus. And what he writes to Timothy about very much is about men and women. I mean, you can go to uh, First Timothy chapter two, for example, and he talks there about the relationship between husbands and wives, that uh, wives should um, uh, listen to their husbands and so forth. And it's, it's a passage which a lot of people get all tied up in knots over because it looks like there that the wife should be just this sort of underling of the husband, not asking questions in the ecclesia, asking submissively at home and so on. But if we understand these things in terms of what we looked at, we can see that uh, her role is much bigger than just being a, a secretary. And then in chapter 3 of Timothy, Paul talks about overseers and deacons. So he's talking about roles in the ecclesia. And it's interesting, in that context, right at the end of First Timothy chapter 3, he just talked about overseers and deacons. He says, if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the ecclesia of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. Look how he describes the ecclesia here. A pillar and a buttress, that word we just looked at, this, this sort of support idea. Both of those words have the idea of a support. So there is something about the ecclesia which is manifest by the wife in a relationship in which we become this support of the truth. And I haven't quite figured out the, the deep significance of this because, you know, when you think about the ecclesia in relationship to Christ, in what way do we support Christ? So it's something I'd like us to. To think a little bit about what, what exactly does that mean to be a, a support? What does it mean to be a pillar and buttress of the truth? I think it's got something to do with the, the idea I mentioned earlier, that we are meant to hold up Christ. He is the truth. He is the glory of God. And we, we hold him up um, through our, our preaching and our example and so forth. Some, something to do with that. But I haven't quite figured that out, out that in my mind. Um, interestingly, another thing I think Paul is doing here is drawing a contrast between the ecclesia as the house of God, and this is what was the seventh wonder of the ancient world, the temple of Artemis in Ephesus. So the people in Ephesus would be very familiar with a certain temple. And in this artist's rendition, you can see it's dominated, there were 127 pillars. And by the huge buttresses, massive, just holding this thing up, supporting this thing up. So when Paul said the ecclesia is the pillar and buttress of the truth, they had that, that example in the city itself. And then when he says in verse 16, great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness, there's that word mystery again. What I think he's doing is he's contrasting this with that great, tr- that great cry. In this verse down here in Acts chapter 19, where you remember where Paul comes to Ephesus and there's this big riot. And the people say, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. Well, Paul says, no, great is the mystery of godliness. Great is the stuff connected with the ecclesia, the bride of Christ, not Artemis, who is this goddess of fertility. That's not what the, the woman is meant to be. The woman is meant to be this pillar and support of the truth. So all sorts of uh, interesting things to get into there. Now, I've been rattling on quite a lot. I've got some more, but is there any thoughts so far? Is anyone still there? Hey,
1: hey Richard, it's Eric. Um, hey. So uh, I like that. Um, connection back to the exodus passage about the rings on the on the ark because that's 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 the vertical support member inside that construction that's a pillar yeah so there's the pillar and then the support piece right right. so it's a it's a nice allusion to the the husband and wife being the essence of that of the church which is um, which is the, you know, the household of God. Yeah.
0: Yeah. yeah. Thanks, Eric. And, um, and I think this, this whole principle, then, we can see in how we view the role of, of men and women in general in the ecclesia that we have these, these separate roles for a reason. It's not that the role of men is better than the role of women or vice versa, it's that we have different skills, different ways of thinking. And therefore, different roles in the ecclesia. We're not meant to all be the same. If we we're all the same, it it wouldn't have that that beauty of, of, of what this mystery of the gospel is all about of of bringing these diverse people together in one. Um, what would the tabernacle be like if it was just all the same? Um, if all all the items of furniture were all the same dimension, for instance. You know, they wouldn't have the beauty. There's, there's beauty in this diversity. And it's what Paul brings out in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, where he says, what if the whole body was an eye or the whole body a foot? You know, the eyes would like it. Every, everyone was an eye. But where would the hearing be? So we need all these different parts of the body. And not one is not better than the other. They all have their function." So in a marriage, the husband and wife have their functions. In the ecclesia, the, ma- the brethren and the sisters have their individual functions. And they're meant to work in this harmony, not in a unison, but in a harmony to produce a beautiful sound. All right. Um, let's come to this last point then, which I found kind of interesting. What does it mean in Genesis chapter 2 where Eve was made specifically as a helper fit for Adam. As I said earlier, this does not mean something like an assistant or a secretary. Someone to run errands while the husband, you know, sits in his chair and does Bible study and the wife changes the diapers and cleans up the mess and so forth. That's not what this is talking about. So get out of your minds. The idea of assistant doesn't mean that at all. In fact, this word helper is quite an incredible Bible word. Since obviously, this is the very first occurrence, it's very early on in the Bible. Almost every single occurrence of this word in the rest of scripture, so the Hebrew word ezer, is used in a very, very powerful context concerning the help and the support there's that word again, but God gives to people in time of trouble. So this is this is this is a huge word. And on this screen, I've listed every single occurrence. There's two random ones down here, but every other occurrence of this word it is about how God is our help in time of need. So the God of my father was my help. Oh Lord, be a help. There is none like God, your help, Save by the Lord, the shield of your help. May he send you help from the sanctuary, give you support from Zion. The Lord, our help and our shield. Oh God, you are my help. I, God, have granted help. He, God, is their help, their help, their shield, my help. My help comes from the Lord. Our help is in the name of the Lord. He whose help is the God of Jacob. You're talking about God. or You're uh, talking about God. He is your helper. So, I mean, that's pretty emphatic, isn't it? It's uh, these two you can look up another time, but almost every single occurrence of this word, after it's used of Eve as Adam's helper, it describes a very godly attribute. Now, we're never going to turn around and say, well, God is just an assistant. You know, we go about our daily, daily lives, and when we need something, oh yeah, we have that assistant up in heaven and we called him and say, hey, can you help me with this problem I'm having? No, God is God's help is far bigger than that. And that aspect of God helping and supporting and being our shield, that is a characteristic which is especially applied to the woman. Now that opens up a huge uh, principle, I think, concerning the, the role of the, the woman in marriage, and, and just adds to the well, power of what it means to be a support, not just that they, she stands there, you know, stock still, holding up the man, it, it's a powerful kind of support, and those of you who have wives who are very supportive, you will know that that wife really is your strength, And that when you're going through issues, you're trying to solve a problem. It's when you get when when you try to do it on your own, because we men tend to be very individualistic. Last week, we saw how we were very task oriented. And when we get sort of caught up in the the, the little task that we run into problems, it's only when you bring the support in. You you bring in the troops, as it were, because this is kind of a military word, you bring in the wife who has that overall perspective and, and bring in that support that that problem then can be solved. And, and you'll know, brethren, speaking to husbands now, you'll know that you've experienced this. If you look back in your life and you see without your wife as that support, you wouldn't have been able to get through certain, well, many things in your life. So that's why it's not good for the man to be alone. Um without the womanly input. And even for single men, this is this is a principle for single men and um, you know in, a, in an ecclesia, it's not that everyone has to get married, but this, this principle applies in our seeking out other perspectives to support us in uh, dealing with the situations that we find ourselves in. And it's this I think this has implications for arranging boards and other committees, which sometimes tend to be very focused or very um, but much run by men in our ecclesias traditionally, we need that womanly input. We need that support, that perspective of our sisters enabled to function properly. I think this, this comes out very, very strongly in this particular word. Uh, here's one example of it. Here's how God is our help. So Psalm 146, blessed is he whose help is in the God of Jacob, whose, that's Ezra, that's the role of the woman, whose hope is in the Lord his God, who made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, who keeps faith forever. Now I've highlighted this because, if you think about it, that idea of keeping faith forever, everything is rolled up in that phrase, the idea of um, faithfulness, fidelity, trustworthiness. Uh, Loyalty—that is more of a characteristic of a woman than a man in general. Okay, women tend to be more faithful, more loyal than men. I mean, face it, brethren—we tend to uh, have more of a problem with this than than women. So that godly aspect of keeping faith forever—the shiny example of that in our lives. Is our sisters. And look what God does in His help. These are, are things that women again tend to manifest better than we men. Executing justice for the oppressed, giving food to the hungry, setting the prisoners free, opening the eyes of the blind, lifting up those who are bowed down. The Lord loves the righteous. The Lord watches over the sojourners. He upholds the widow and the fatherless, but the way of the wicked He brings to ruin. And you can see. In this, this language, the sort of thing that God does to help the needy and so forth. There, there's a reason why. Um, and again, this is a general thing. Most nurses, for example, are women. Most, um, what you call it? Social workers tend to be women. It's 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 the um, the aspect of God which comes out more in that side of Adam that was reserved for the woman. Another passage that uses this word, Ezra. May the Lord answer you in the day of trouble. May the name of the God of Jacob protect you. May he send you help from the sanctuary, give you support from Zion. Our help is in the name of the Lord who made heaven and earth. Again, this is the word that's reserved for the woman. Adam is not said to be a help. You know, Adam has his other characteristics, but this characteristic is specifically spoken of of the woman. And here in this psalm, what is helping from the sanctuary, what is giving support, twice we're told, it is the name of the God of Jacob. Now, this is a whole other class to get into this. We've only got a few minutes left, so I just to want, want to bring out one little aspect of the name of the God of Jacob and how it especially comes out in the, the better half of Adam. And uh, it's to do with this idea we looked at last week of empathy. So you may remember this slide from last week. where well, we had a look at the differences between men and women. This was that list um, from the Psychology Today article where it it, um, grades, if you like, um, main differences between male and female. And the ones toward the top of the list are minor differences, and the ones at the end of the list tend to be more major differences. So the one I picked out from last week, and you'll see why I'm doing this in a moment, is this idea of empathy. So women tend to be much more empathetic than men. And we know this through experience. Whereas men, one of the big differences between men and women, it's kind of scary. We are very vulnerable to become psychopaths. That's horrible. Which is, of course, the exact opposite of empathy. And I think it's because we are so focused on the task, on the problem itself, and we, we struggle to see the big picture. And we... Um, tend to be very individualistic and we, men tend to be loners more than women, that we have this vulnerability. We don't, we, we find it difficult to walk in other people's shoes. Women, empathy is much more natural to them. So we also had a look at this, this slide. Women typically have a larger limbic system that makes men, which makes them more in touch and expressive with their emotions. Women are usually more empathetic and comprehensive in thinking, while men focus on exact issues and disregard impertinent information. That summarizes what we just said. So, this is a particular aspect of our sisters, which I think we brethren need to really value and I don't know whether this is the right expression tap into in our marriages and in the ecclesias to get that perspective of the woman in the decisions we make as an ecclesia, and for brethren in uh, getting the input of our wives when we're putting a class together, for instance, in which we can get so focused on on the little detail that we forget to look at that bigger picture, and we forget to uh, provide that empathetic angle to the things that we do and say. So, what's interesting about, about all that, coming back to this idea of the name of the God of Jacob, when we look at God's name, a lot of these characteristics of God's name, this was what was declared to Moses on Mount Sinai, they tend to be characteristics that we associate more with women than men, for instance, faithfulness, which we mentioned earlier, steadfast love, that's the idea of loyalty, that tends to be more, women tend to be more loyal than men in uh, in marriages. Most, you know, again, this is, I'm speaking in generality here, but most marriage breakers, because of infel- infidelity are due to the man, Happens the other way, too, but that's generally the man is usually the, the prime mover in, in situations like that, even though obviously in an affair there's a woman involved, too. But we know that women do tend to be more loyal. Now, especially we see with this word empathy, that word there where it says God is merciful, that is, that means really the idea of empathy or compassion, And this is a very, very womanly characteristic. In fact, it's such a womanly characteristic that the same word for empathy or mercy or compassion in Scripture, the exact same word is used for a mother's womb. So what I think we're being told in this characteristic of God is his mercy or his compassion or his empathy is like the connection between a mother and the child that she bears in her womb. It's that amazing um, connection and empathy that only a a mother can truly understand. That is a characteristic of God that I think by, as it were, dividing Adam in two and making the male and female, He especially implanted in the woman by providing her with a womb and giving her this uh, role of, of support and help that God was giving the task of the woman to really emphasize in her relationships these godly characteristics. So that we men, when we're working through problems, we cry for help and we get the compassion, we get the grace, we get the patience, we get the loyalty. We get the faithfulness that can temper our more sort of manly uh, way of, of looking at issues. Anyway, our time is completely gone. So we've been looking uh, mainly in the Epistle to the Ephesians, and that's where we're going to spend most of our time for this class. And this is uh, an epistle in which Paul expounds on the mystery of the gospel, and he explains how Gentiles once were far off from Christ would have been brought nigh through the blood of Christ, and how Jew and Gentile now need to become one body in the Lord Jesus Christ. So with that in mind, let's remind ourselves of something we had a look at either in our first or second class, and that is the overall, um, or a, break, a very brief breakdown of Ephesians. And uh, extremely brief, just in two uh, columns here, Ephesians is basically split into two halves. And, and the very structure of this book is part of the way in which Paul teaches about the mystery of the gospel and about the importance of of ecclesial unity. Because in the first half of Ephesians, in the first three chapters, he talks a lot about doctrine. That's his main focus. This is the doctrine. But then in the last three chapters, he says that doctrine needs to be put into practice. And so we tend to emphasize either doctrine or practice. We might say the Jews maybe emphasize doctrine, the Gentiles maybe emphasize practice in a general kind of way. And we tend to do that in the truth, too. Some of us um, enjoy getting into uh, doctrine and Bible study and so forth. And there are others in our community who prefer the the practical side of the truth. And of course, we've got to develop a mindset that is, is involved in both of these things. But what I wanna emphasize in this particular class is that um, some of us do tend towards doctrine, some of us do tend towards uh, practice. And for that reason, we need to work together because it's very hard to change. It's it's very hard to um, get the balance perfectly right as individuals, but we can get the balance right if we work together as a family, as a community. We also made the point uh, a few weeks ago that what's interesting, little twist in the way Paul develops doctrine and practice is that in the first half of Ephesians, he emphasizes the doctrine of grace. And in the second half of Ephesians, he emphasizes the practice of truth. And that kind of turns things a little bit on its head In the way in which we normally associate people who tend to be more towards doctrine, they tend to emphasize truth, and people who emphasize practice uh, tend to also emphasize grace. But Paul turns around and says, no, let's concentrate on the doctrine of grace, let's concentrate on practicing truth, and that way we can get the balance right and uh, function as that one body in Christ. Now, one more slide on the, the structure of Ephesians. This is what I think is the, pretty much the middle verse of Ephesians. And you'll see how important it is. What Paul wants us to do ultimately in this book is to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. That ultimately is what binds us together. The love of Christ who gave his life for us. Paul talks about this extensively in Ephesians, how the blood of Christ brings Jew and Gentile together. And of course, he gave his life because he loves us. That is ultimately what is going to bind us together. But the part of this verse I want to emphasize, you can see on the screen, is we need to know that love that we may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now, what on earth does that mean? What does it mean to be filled with all the fullness of God, what is this fullness that Paul talks about? And he talks about it a couple of times in Ephesians. Well first, on the left hand side of Ephesians 3 verse 19, the emphasis is on grace, as we saw in the last slide. And then after Ephesians 3:19 then he gets more into the topic of truth. And I would suggest to you that those two words, grace and truth, Summarize what this fullness of God is that we need to be filled with. Now, you might be thinking of a Bible echo here. Who was full of grace and truth? Anyone? Jesus, of course. Right. John chapter 1, verse 14 Jesus was full of grace and truth. And there's an interesting connection here between the way. Paul structures Ephesians and the way John structures his gospel record. And very much so, John is a gospel in which he reveals the mystery of the gospel. He goes back time and time again in his gospel record to the Old Testament and shows how various things in the Old Testament, like the tabernacle, and most especially the tabernacle, Hidden in that tabernacle was the Lord Jesus Christ. And he brings this out in the first chapter, in these very famous verses. He says in the very first verse, in the beginning was the word. And we can look at that as the pattern of the tabernacle or as doctrine. So when we look at when we go back into the Old Testament, we look at the chapters about the tabernacle in Exodus. There's two great big chunks. And first of all, we learn about the pattern of the tabernacle in Exodus chapters 25 to 31. That's the doctrine of the tabernacle. This is what the tabernacle is going to look like. And that's what doctrine is. Doctrine is teaching us what we should look like as brothers and sisters in Christ. But then, of course, we've got to put it into practice. So the second chunk about the tabernacle in Exodus is about how they built the tabernacle. That's Exodus chapters 35 right to the end and so john says that the word the doctrine became flesh the the word was put into practice as the lord jesus christ fulfilled the, the the doctrine of the old testament and paul says he dwelt among us that word dwelt some very old translations have the word tabernacled which is kind of a a word that people coined to express what this word dwelt means. So that's what John's thinking, but he's thinking about the tabernacle. So Jesus tabernacled among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only son from the father, and here it is, full of grace and truth. Those two words, which I said, summarize Paul's epistle to the Ephesians. So when we look at the Lord Jesus Christ, We see that balance between doctrine and practice, between grace and truth, perfected in an individual. However, what we're going to see, and this is what Paul outlines in Ephesians, is that Christ is the head directing us who are the body. And what we have to do, because we struggle to get the balance right, because we tend to be more Jewish or Gentile or left wing or right wing or conservative or liberal because we tend towards those we we struggle with a balance as a body we need to be filled with the fullness of god which is being full of grace and truth as a body and of course the tabernacle when it was finished you can read about this in exodus 40 verse 34 and 35 it says that when moses finished the tabernacle it was full of the glory of god So that's what Paul is thinking about here. So that is ultimately what what, uh, Paul is uh, focusing on in Ephesians. The ultimate purpose of God, to be filled with the fullness of God, to be full of God's glory, that the whole earth might be full of his glory. And when we look at the tabernacle, we see a description of how that is, is to come about. All right, so. Let's have a look how Paul develops this in Ephesians. In the very first chapter, when he starts talking about doctrine, he reminds us that God has an eternal purpose. And if you look through uh, the first 11 verses here, you see this little phrase keeps cropping up that uh, he predestined for adoption according to the purpose of his will. We have forgiveness of our sins according to the riches of his grace. And he talks about the mystery of his will according to his purpose. Verse 11, in Christ we've obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things, according to the counsel of his will. I mean, Paul keeps saying it over and over again. So what Paul outlines here is that everything God does is according to his purpose. God doesn't make things up as he goes along. He is a God who has a plan, who has a blueprint, and then he follows that blueprint, which is exactly what is in the description of the tabernacle. Moses and the other builders didn't just make it up as they went along. They were given the pattern of the tabernacle, and then they had to build according to it. And that's why both doctrine and practice are important, of course. We don't just make it up what it means to be a brother or sister in Christ and have some sort of vague idea about being a good person and loving one another. No, it, it's got to be based on the pattern. It's got to be based on the the doctrine, on the purpose of God. And then we, we, we um, build up our lives and our families and our ecclesias according to that doctrine. And what Paul is doing here is he's using the the figure of the tabernacle. That exact same phrase in the Greek is used a couple of other times in Acts 7 and Hebrews 8, where we're reminded that when Moses was given instructions about the tabernacle, God spoke to Moses and directed him to make it, there it is, according to the pattern, Hebrews 8. When Moses was about to erect the tent, he was instructed by God, saying, "See that you make everything according to the pattern." That's a quotation from Exodus chapter twenty-five and verse nine. So there's the principle, very applicable to ourselves. That's why doctrine is important. We we can't build the right house without the right directions. So we need to understand doctrine, and and we all understand that. And, And Paul. In the first few chapters, emphasizes that over and over again. Now, in the um, second half of Ephesians, then Paul talks about the building of the house. And he, again, thinks about the tabernacle. So if you go back to the chapters in Exodus about the tabernacle, there were men who were given gifts, a lot like the gifts of the Holy Spirit, uh, in particularly two men. Uh, Bezalel and Aholiab were given wisdom, knowledge, understanding, and expertise in all sorts of uh, uh, artistic um, ways to construct and uh, build the tabernacle. So Paul is thinking about this now in Ephesians 4, where he says he gave, with the idea of, of these people being given the gift He gave the apostles, prophets, evangelists, shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of the ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ. And that's what Paul emphasizes in this second half. We need to take the doctrine and then build our ecclesias according to it with the aim, verse 13, until we all attain to the unity of the faith. That's Paul's central exhortation. And of the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. So there he is repeating his that main central verse. That's the point of what we do. That was the point of building the tabernacle. That was the point of God creating the heavens and earth that ultimately might be full of his glory. Now, another thing you'll notice here is that there is um, interesting mixed metaphors that Paul uses. So right in the middle of talking about building up, the idea of erecting a house, he also uses the metaphor of a body. And if you go down to verse 15, you can see that here too. Rather speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up like a body grows in every way into him who is the head into Christ. So, as we think about the house, we need to think of the, the dual metaphor of the body. And just as a house is built up until it's complete, so we need to grow as a body in Christ until we reach this word, uh, measure of the stature, has the idea of maturity. Also, says he here to mature manhood, where, where to uh, grow up as a body. So, think of those two. Metaphors then as we uh, look through Ephesians. So Ephesians also says that Christ is the head of the body. So in chapter 1 verse 22, he put all things under his feet and gave him his head over all things to the ecclesia, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. There's that word again. And I want to make the point again, Christ is full of grace and truth. The body also needs to be full of grace and truth. So exactly what he says here, the fullness of him who fills all in all. But to do that, to accomplish the task, the the ultimate aim of the house or the body, again, we need to work together. This is Paul's point in Ephesians. You're not gonna do it on your own. The Jews can't do it on their own. Gentiles can't do it on their own. We as individuals can't do it on our own. Our religion is not meant to be individualistic. It's meant to be communal. That's why God invented the idea of the ecclesia, that we meet together, that we become a united ecclesia in Christ because we need each other. And this is what Paul wants Jew and Gentile to learn. They need each other. And that was an unnatural thing, of course. They were naturally antagonistic to each other. And and that's why Paul brings in the example of Christ and the blood of Christ and the love of Christ, because that's what's going to bring them together. Same principles apply to us today, when we tend to be antagonistic towards those that we don't necessarily get on with because they have a different way of thinking, they're too liberal or too conservative or whatever it is, we need to learn to work together. All right, so that's um, the basic principles then. I'll ask a question, as I've asked a, a few times, why God did it this way. So here's a little graph or chart showing that in the beginning, in God's purpose, he decided to separate and put on two different routes, Jew and Gentile. The Jew focused on Yahweh, he's the only true God, the Gentiles getting all mixed up in pagan polytheism, developing their separate ways of thinking, separate philosophies, ideals, worldviews, and everything, and then... Bang, in the first century, one in Christ. Why did God do things like that? Why didn't he just have one line here? Here's God's purpose in the beginning, to fill the earth with his glory, and he just works with all people. He doesn't bother separating Jew and Gentile. He works with everyone and tries to instill in everyone grace and truth. Why go for this whole rigmarole of separating Jew and Gentile? And I think we've we've really answered this um, a few times in our classes. However, let's think about it um, from another angle. What God is not asking Jew and Gentile to do in Ephesians is somehow merge into the same person. We're meant to be different in the body of Christ, all different parts making up the one body. I think this is an important point when we come to verses like at the bottom of the screen here, this very famous verse in Galatians, there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is no male and female, for you're all one in Christ Jesus. And that's absolutely fundamental. We are one in Christ Jesus. But well, what does that oneness look like? Does that mean we're all um, the same? I think the word is homogenous. That, that we all have to have the same way of thinking, the, the, the same slant, that, that uh, those who are tend more towards doctrine have to come to more towards the middle, those on the other side, have to come, and they have to become the same. They have to kind of merge together, as I tried to illustrate here. And I would submit to you that while in a sense, yes, because we all need to become like Christ, what God is looking for in this oneness is what we might call diversity in unity. Think about uh, what Paul says in Corinthians In 1 Corinthians chapter 12, where he talks about those different parts of the body, and he, he talks about how the eye shouldn't say to the foot, you cannot see, therefore you should not be part of the body. No, the eye needs the foot, the foot needs the eye. And it's not as if the eye needs to be a foot as well, and the foot needs to be an eye as well. No, they all have their different skills, their different ways of looking at things, their different functions in the body. The point is they become one when they work together. And I think that's what Paul is trying to drive through to Jews and Gentiles in the first century. Yes, ultimately, we all want to become like Christ. But because we struggle with the balance, we need to work together and have uh, respect uh, for those who are towards the other end of the spectrum. And it's not that Jew is meant to become Greek. It's not that uh, slaves are meant to become masters or masters meant to become slaves or um, males become females. Females become males, which, of course, is the vogue in this world. Uh, this, this, this kind of equality which merges the, the genders together. That's not what the Bible teaches. The Bible teaches diversity in unity. And it makes things far richer and far more interesting. If we're all the same, I mean, how boring would that be anyway? All right. With all of this in mind, we are going to have a look at uh, these metaphors of building the house and unity and the growth of the body and so forth through something very interesting that the Apostle Paul does at the end of Ephesians. And that is what he calls the mystery of marriage. Now, Ken asked me to define mystery at the beginning. Mystery is not something that is mysterious, although some of us here may be thinking, well, marriage is a little bit mysterious. Um, And it is in some ways. But uh, the reason he uses the word mystery here is because of the, the same principle. And, and what Paul is going to do in Ephesians chapter 5, he's going to do a little exposition of the very first marriage in the Old Testament, right back in Genesis chapter 2. And in effect, in effect what Paul is going to do is, is say, that mystery of the growth of the body and the building of the house and unity in Christ, and even things like the love of Christ and the death of Christ, the blood of Christ—all of those things were hidden away in Genesis chapter two for however many thousand years. It's always been there. What what I'm saying, Paul says in Ephesians here, is nothing new. I'm simply taking Genesis chapter two and expanding it out. So he says in Ephesians five verse thirty-two. This mystery is profound and it is. And we're going to just dip into the, uh, dip a little bit below the surface into looking at marriage in a moment. And I'm saying that marriage refers to Christ and the ecclesia. So what Adam and Eve did in Genesis chapter two, and what we do when, if we're married, is we're acting out this whole thing. The marriage of Christ and the Ecclesia. And we understand that the Ecclesia is also called not just the body of Christ, it's also called the bride of Christ. all, All of these things sort of work together. And when we think of marriage like that, it really deepens the whole thing. Those of us who are married are acting out what it means to be one in Christ. And what the Apostle Paul does in his uh, about 11 or 12 verses at the end of Ephesians chapter 5 is he takes all of the principles that he's talked about in the previous four and a half chapters. And he says, now, have a look at this through marriage. It's a remarkable thing that he does. So what I want us to do is work through this. And we might not get through it all today. So we'll carry on with this. Uh, God willing, next week in our last class. So let me give you uh, some examples of how Paul uses uh, marriage to illustrate the whole principle. Um, First of all, we're not going to go through this chiastic structure, but this is Ephesians chapter 5, verse 22 to 33, those last several verses of Ephesians where he talks about wives and husbands and brings out how Christ loved the ecclesia and so forth. So there's all these parallels here in these verses, pointing us to what is right in the middle. What is the point of marriage? What is the point of Christ being the head of the ecclesia? The point is that he might present the ecclesia to himself in Splendor, which is kind of another way of saying what we read of earlier in Ephesians chapter 3, the love of Christ, which he talks about extensively in the principle of marriage, is there that we may be filled with all the fullness of God. So the ecclesia needs to be a, a splendid other versions have a glorious ecclesia. So that's that's what we're meant to be doing. And for we husbands, that's our role as husbands is to make sure that our wives reflect the glory of God. And that really expands on what marriage is all about. It's a really, really deep thing. So here's an example. Back in Ephesians chapter 1, Paul is talking about the purpose of God. He says he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, why that we should be holy and blameless or holy and without blemish. And he's picking out, actually, he's picking up on the idea of the the lamb that was used in offerings that should be holy and without blemish. Now, interestingly, that language there, which applies generally to all of us, of course, we all need to come to that point. But he specifically says this about marriage. Ephesians 5, verse 27, that he might present the ecclesia to himself in splendor, that verse we just looked at, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing that she might be holy and without blemish. And even though it's translated differently here, it's the exact same phrase in the Greek. So in effect, what Paul is doing is saying, look at marriage as an outworking of these principles that I'm talking about. Uh, i got a few other examples here. First of all, though, here's the issue that we all are confronted with in our marriages. We come from different planets. We're not dissimilar to Jews and Gentiles. Men are from Mars and women are from Venus. Not literally, of course, but this is a famous book that was put out which talks about those those differences and the the conflicts that we can get into in marriage because men and women are very different. We think differently. We have different approaches to things. And it can cause lots of issues in marriages, as I'm sure all of us who are married are very, very uh, well aware of this. And uh, marriage is something that takes work and uh, that, that we might As the Jews and Gentiles had to work together, we might work together to produce uh, that oneness that God is looking for in marriage. So what I've done is I've got a couple of quotes here. So you don't think I'm just making this up off the top of my head. And uh, this is actually a good example of marriage in process, because I told Esther I was going to talk about the differences between men and women. And she said, make sure you quote some sources so they don't think this is just Richard talking. So there's Esther helping her husband to produce this, this class. So just a little mini example of, of husband and wife working together. And uh, this is from Psychology Today. And there are a num- you can look at a number of articles there in which they talk about the differences between male and female. So men tend to be very linear they go from point A to point B. They were very direct. Women on the other hand tend to think more globally and consider the big picture. This of course creates all sorts of conflicts from communication to the perception of emotional availability, to sexuality, to problem solving, to asking for directions, whole slew of things. And this is probably one of the main things that is is a challenge in marriage. Uh, women do think more globally. They do think of the big picture. While a man will tend to focus on the, the, the thing at hand itself and not see the, uh, the context around it and try to fix the, the problem in, it, in and of itself, whereas a woman will tend to approach this. And again, this is a tendency. These are generalities, of course. And a woman will tend to approach that Looking at the context, looking at the broad picture and looking at things. If we do it this way, it's going to affect that. If we do it this way, it's going to affect that. Where a man just thinks, well, here's a good solution and gets his hammer and nail. Bang, bang, bang. And problem sorted. And then more problems come because he hasn't asked the advice of the big picture thinker. So we've probably all come into situations like that in our lives. Um, over on the right-hand side, um, I've tried to summarize the article. And uh, basically, men are, as a general, physical creatures. That summarizes men. Women, on the other hand, are more complicated and more contemplative creatures. They are, I love the way that this article puts it, they are the thread that holds the fabric of society together. And what we're going to see, actually, is that is quite biblical and I don't think whoever wrote this article was was looking at um Genesis 2 or any of the other passages in in relation to marriage but that is a as uh we're going to touch on hopefully later or next week the way uh women hold the fabric of society together and tend to think about the whole cloth not just the part that they can see or touch that's very very biblical indeed and I, I really like that. So there's just a, a little example of how men and women are different. If anyone objects, you can not just take it up with me. You can take it up with psychology today. Uh, so let's look at the parallel between marriage and the mystery of the gospel. Here's this graph again that we saw earlier. God separated Jew and Gentile, brings them together, one in Christ. What do we see in marriage? We see the exact same thing. Okay? It's not that men live in a men's commune and women live in a women's commune and they never really talk to each other, which in many ways would make life easier. I mean, in the men's commune, we just have sports and barbecues and uh, board games or whatever it is that we do. We ride motorbikes. to so our heart's content and we'd be as happy as, as can be. And uh, women wouldn't have men to contend with, and they would be happy, and wouldn't that make life just so much easier? Well, no. God brought man and woman who he purposefully made, in Genesis chapter 1, verse 27, he made them male and female. So this is in God's purpose from the beginning. He could have just made one single gender, But no, he made them very different, male and female. And now, he says in Genesis chapter 2, you need to be one, which in many ways is a ridiculous thing uh, because of the differences between men and women. So it's a a beautiful illustration of the the mystery of the gospel. Now, this is from another of these lists here. This is from another Psychology Today article. There's the address down there. The truth about sex differences. And what this article does is it um, summarizes many of the main differences between male and female genders. And it puts them as either small, small differences, medium differences, or big differences. And uh, the lists are far longer than this, but i just try to summarize them. And I try to get a mix of positive and negative. I didn't have a very good, uh, do a very good job of that with men. There weren't very posit- many positive things about men. I don't know why. I, I don't get it. So um, impulsivity, physical aggression. We'll talk about this one in a moment. The only real two Um, positive differences are that we tend to be better at task-oriented leadership. Um, And again, that's that's focused, going back to a previous slide, that's focused on a particular task and we're good at solving tasks and providing the leadership in that task-oriented way. We're also good at mental rotation ability. Yay, man. So we're much better at women at mental rotation ability. I have no idea what that is, but it sounds fantastic. We're we're obviously awesome. Um, On the other hand, there were a lot of positive things about women, interpersonal trust, tender-mindedness, interest in people over things. Um, And uh, towards the top of the list are those that tend to be a little less that we're different in. And at the bottom of the list, these tend to be the ones we're more different about. And uh, the one I really want to bring out is this idea of empathy. And we men, although we can have empathy, we struggle with it. So with women, it's, it's, it's pretty natural. Women are empathetic creatures. Whereas one of the main differences between male and female, according to this article is that we men have a vulnerability to psychopathy in other words we are more likely to become psychopaths Yay, men again Uh, which really is the opposite of empathy we really really struggle with empathy and uh that's one of the reasons why we men really need women. What would it be like if we did just have a commune of men lacking in empathy? It would be, um, what's that book? Lord of the Flies. We need women. We need that uh, empathy that we might come together. We might balance each other out. And whereas uh, women might need things like task oriented leadership and definitely they need mental rotation ability, which we're really good at. And uh, women need that. And we need these um, more womenly characteristics. And then we work together as one in Christ. I mean, what would raising children be like if we were just like this or just like this? So. You know, being a parent requires uh, input from both mom and dad. So it's really, really interesting, I find, to look at uh, uh, these things and to um, see how they relate. But if anyone wants to comment, I know I'm going super fast. Just uh, jump in. So there's another... um, another presentation I came across, thinking about this idea of empathy and emotions. So emotions, women typically have a larger limbic system as part of the brain, which makes them more in touch and expressive with their emotions. And I know as a man, I struggle to express my emotions Um, My stock answer is, are you okay? Yep, fine. Everything's fine. Uh, Women are usually more empathetic and comprehensive in thinking, while men focused on exact issues and disregard impertinent information. So that's saying what we've looked at before in another way. Uh, We tend to be task-oriented. We look at the, the problem itself, focus on that. And we have good problem solving skills, but we do tend to disregard impertinent information. We tend to miss the big picture. We tend to miss what the ramifications will be. We tend to miss how it might affect other people. Whereas women tend to look at those things. Often as more important than solving the problem itself. And uh, in our lives in the truth, in which we're always solving problems, and in marriages and and parenting and so forth, uh, we need to work together. We need the problem solving skills of the male, and we need the empathy of the female. Otherwise, it's simply not going to work. Any thoughts on that? I thought this would bring in a lot of discussion. Is anyone still there? Oh yeah. <laughs> What's that little uh, clip at the bottom? Pardon? The video. What's the little video clip at the bottom of Oh, I don't know. This is I just cut, I just uh, took a Coffee screen it. A screen grab. I think that's from a the uh, friend, the Friends TV show. Yeah. I like this, uh, these, this, the man's right. day.
1: Right, I'm sure. I'm different
0: day. Emotions. Okay. Hey, um, Rich, just so you know, what
1: mental rotational ability is? Is that spatial thinking? It's spatial rotations. We right. ran into this in education when they discovered that men were so much better in chemistry when we got into looking at the rotational ability of three-dimensional models of a molecule. So men are men have a much more of an ability to do that. So do right. teenage boys. Uh, when girls seem to have trouble with like taking figures and rotating them in their head and finding out what matches up, what's the exact same shape as this when you rotate it. Right.
0: Yeah, so uh, that, that really helps in problem solving, right? It helps in problem solving, <laughs> but it's not entirely practical. So if you know it, it's 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 great on a maybe a doctor a doctrinal level but on a a practical level it's it has limited uses
1: but we're good at it
0: which is awesome all right so let's have a look at another uh, few ways in which paul brings out um the principles in ephesians and applies them to marriage so we've looked at this passage before in ephesians 2 that jesus is our peace that the, the middle, the dividing wall has been broken down and so forth. We looked at this last week that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two. So Jew and Gentile come together as one in Christ. Now, the echo with marriage there is pretty obvious. Here, Paul, at the end of Ephesians says, and he quotes from that verse in Genesis 2. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. You know, looking at this, you'd almost think that Paul was quoting from the very same passage. So marriage very much is to do with this this principle of unity. Um, Love, obvious in marriage, comes out very strongly. So earlier in Ephesians, uh, uh, Paul talks in a general way that we should walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us now that same language he applies to marriage ephesians 5:25. husbands love your wives as christ loved the ecclesia and gave himself up for her you see gave himself up gave himself up so that's how we husbands should look at our wives we need to be christ to them so having a wife is not like you know having a trophy wife, um, even though I have one, but at the same time, it's not just about that. It's not about just thinking your wife is, is, is good-looking and so forth. No, love is the love of Christ that we should have. And that obviously expands the whole um, principle of marriage hugely. Um, the idea of a pattern that we've looked at earlier that the building is made according to the pattern or everything God does is according to his purpose. When we look at marriage and we look at Christ and the ecclesia, one is the pattern of the other. As the ecclesia submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Now, this is a a key verse because this idea of submission is um, not a politically correct word in modern society the idea of a wife submitting to a husband but the important thing here is what it says Uh, as the ecclesia submits to christ wives submit to their husbands so paul is not asking a wife to submit to an egyptian taskmaster if that's the sort of husband we are, we're not meant to submit. That Wives are not meant to submit to that. We're not meant to treat our wives as, as doormats or as slaves in the house. There has to be this reciprocal relationship where we're Christ to our, our wife, and it's that that she submits to as the ecclesia submits to Christ. Otherwise, there's no reason at all for a wife to submit to an abusive husband. Uh, speaking of submission, uh, he talks more generally in Ephesians 5:21, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ, and that picks up on um, Ephesians 1, where it says that he. This is a verse we looked at earlier. He put all things under his feet and gave him an, as head over all things to the ecclesia, which is his body. So there is the way in which the body is put under. That word "put" is exactly the same word, submitting. So he submits all things under his feet, including the Ecclesia. So the head directs the body, and that's the kind of uh, relationship and how that, how that applies to marriage is um, something that we need to be really, really careful of how we understand this. You know, the head controlling the body, that doesn't mean that husbands should be control freaks of their wives. It's not what it's saying at all. That's not what Christ is to us. Christ does not lord it over us. He's not a taskmaster. He's somebody completely different. Uh, the idea of the body, obviously. So um, in Ephesians 5, a man shall leave his father and mother, and hold fast to his wife, the two shall become one flesh. So we're, we're to be one flesh, one body. In a, obviously in a spiritual way. He talks about that uh, to do with the Ecclesia in Ephesians 4. Speaking the truth in love, that's what binds us together. We are to grow up as a body in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped. When each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Um, So that is how Paul then brings out all of these principles and applies them to Christ and the Ecclesia. And as I said, this is a little mini exposition of Genesis chapter 2. Now, we've reached uh, 22 minutes past. I want to leave this till next week. We're going to look a little bit more deeply in, or more profoundly. Remember what Paul says this mystery is. This mystery is profound, Christ in the Ecclesia. So next week, we want to have a look at this a little bit more profoundly or deeply. We're going to look at the, the some of the language here that I've uh, emphasized here. Why it was not good that the man should be alone. What this deep sleep means. Why Adam uh, Eve was made out of a rib. What it means that Eve was made what it means to be one flesh, and we're gonna have a look at what it means to be a helper fit for Adam. So that's what we're gonna talk about next week. And I don't wanna start this section right now, so we will finish there.